them off Seven Nation Army couldn't hold me back They're gonna rip it off Taking their time right behind my back and I'm You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told October 13th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Hauntings. Music was performed by the Nelson family band Sunken Treasure. Tonight's first storyteller is Sarah Hannon. Sarah is a lifelong Alaskan who has based her life in Juneau for almost 30 years. She's a a veteran storyteller at Mudrooms, having shared her tale of falling in love and marrying a man she barely knew, the road they have traveled together, and unexpected encounters while traveling. This story ventures to darker moments of her life, starting on October night, 23 years ago, while living in Vladivostok, Russia. Please welcome Sarah to the stage. So the thing that's different in real life than in the movies when you're haunted by something is there's no clear foreshadowing. There isn't the creepy soundtrack that lets you know that when you open the door that night in the safety of your own apartment, on the other side lies danger that you'll never come back from. So on that night when I was awoken to some noise and commotion in the apartment I lived in, I didn't know that when I opened the door that night, what I was stepping into was a violent assault in progress. And that the young woman pinned against the wall in the hallway, who was very small in comparison to me, I was much lighter than 23 years ago. But at 17, she had no skills to fight off the intruder who was an invited guest in the house. And sometimes I'm haunted by the thought that there are many women who live in that state of terror. Not one night, not one moment. For me, it actually happened very quickly. The rage was turned on me. I didn't know what I'd stepped out of and into. And it took me a few minutes to come to my senses and realize he was trying to kill me. And I had to do everything I could to just stay up. Because if he got me on the floor, I was sure I was going to be killed. And he repeatedly tried to snap my neck, but the leverage was such that he couldn't. He didn't break my neck, but he did manage to crack my skull. I wasn't ever unconscious. So as the rest of the night unfolded fairly rapidly, like I said, it was only a few minutes. I made it through the other side. We didn't get him out of the apartment, but the commotion had woken up the neighbors. And I didn't know it at the time, but our above neighbors, he was a police officer. And as the man that we couldn't get out the door staggered back in, it was only then that I realized how drunk he was. The neighbors arrive, and the storytelling begins. And I knew at that moment I was okay. I wasn't going to die. But there was always this moment before that in my life in Russia where I had been extremely coddled. And every part of my life was about making a good impression on me, the Westerner living there, or making sure that I was taken care of. And everybody in my world spoke some English 
or I spoke marginal enough Russian, that we could have light conversations. But now these conversations weren't light in nature. It was what the hell is going on, and what's all this blood, and what's all this noise? And I'm dependent on the 17-year-old daughter in my household, who I have been dependent on, as my primary translator, to get the message across. And I become very aware that from the people who are arriving, she's done something wrong, when in my perspective, she's not done anything wrong. And again, the violent, drunken rage that had been faced upon me, it wasn't Russia. I know there are people whose lives are like that everywhere. So I wasn't enraged with the Russians or my family, but I did spiral into this dark, dark vortex that led me to the People's Hospital that night. And a hospital is a very broad term, which really meant a concrete bunker with some bloody gauze on the floor. And I knew that I had at home, back in the apartment, a med kit with disposable needles and opiates because I had left the country prepared because my mother had said, if you're going to live overseas, I need you to make a will before you go, and you got to take this with you, and you need to promise me not to get married. <laughs> I didn't. I surprised her with the elopation a few years later. So that night, the story had to be told through multiple people and translators, and it just wasn't making sense. And I just wanted to go back to the safety of my apartment, which wasn't safe the moment left, but I was pretty sure was now better than the Russian hospital that was the offering before me. And the next day, the stories had to start again, because by then, the consulate's office had heard about it, and the few Westerners that lived in the city and a few of my friends showed up at the door with the driver, a translator, a consular office, and off to the Soviet officials' hospital we went which looked very different. And it turns out I had great medical care while I was in Russia, and it was free. And when I walked through the second hospital, I was offered modern medical attention and care, but I still didn't want to stay. It was only then when the x-rays showed the crack that I understood the magnitude of the injuries I'd suffered, but I wasn't going to call my mom that day. I needed more information. And it was days that became weeks that my life was the assault, the story told over and over. And I was becoming everyone's tragic Russian tale. So about a month after the assault, I came home to lick my wounds and recover. But I knew that that also meant I was going to have to tell the story over and over and over. And there were always going to be the questions about the tragedy and the who and the what and the where. And I just wished for it to stop, for me to not be the tragic outcome, because I felt victorious. I'd survive, and this was going to turn out fine, and it did. But everybody kept asking. So on a December night, when I was at my sister's house, licking my wounds, feeling sorry for myself, and just wishing that I wasn't the most tragic thing in anyone's life, the phone rang at my sister's house, and it was a simple question. Had we heard from Kevin? The boat had gone out that morning with eight souls on board. They were a couple hours overdue. Did we know where they were? Because this was the stepfather of two of the boys on board. Every house in Craig in those days had a marine radio. I don't remember if I tried to raise him on the marine radio or he waited till Brian came home. Kevin didn't answer. We didn't know then, but we knew in a couple hours the boat had gone down a couple hours into their voyage that morning, had rolled in a rogue wave, eight souls on board. Four were surviving. My story wasn't tragic anymore.
Our next speaker is Randy Coleman. Randy was born and raised in Michigan, lived in the Washington DC area for 10 years, and has lived in Juneau for 25 years. He was a public, um, he was a policy analyst with the Forest Service for 24 years and retired a year ago. Here's Randy. In the early 90s, my wife Lisa and I take our first trip to Hawaii, which included two full weeks going all around the Big Island. And one of the places we most wanted to visit was a unit of the National Park System, a National Historical Park, about 20 miles south of Kona, right on the beach, just south of Keala Kekua Bay, where Captain Cook met his demise, called Pu'u Honua O Honaunau. Now that's a mouthful, but it means place of refuge of Honaunau. To understand what a place of refuge is, you need to understand a little bit about Hawaiian culture. It was in ancient days, before 1810, divided very strictly into a very rigid structure of four castes, ruled pretty much by the top two. The top one was the elite, or royalty, chiefs and sub-chiefs, and they were deemed royal because they were believed to have very special divine spiritual power known as mana, which the native Hawaiians, ancient Hawaiians, believed permeated people as well as things, as well as places, the ocean, etc. The second caste were the kahuna, which were the top tradespeople, but many, if not most of whom, were priests who were deemed to be experts in one or another specific applications of mana, like foretelling the future, casting out spells, or casting spells, healing the sick, whatever. So this particular national park preserves the last remaining place of refuge that is available for the public to visit. The place it occupies in the culture is those top two castes. They rule through a system of very elaborate rules and laws called kapu. Now for any transgression of the kapu system, there's only one penalty, death. There's no escape unless you somehow make it through this gauntlet to a place of refuge, which is located right next to the temple grounds. Okay, and separated from the community, usually by a big rock wall. So we get to this park, looking forward to this experience, late afternoon, and the visitor center's already closed. Bummer. The gate's gonna be closed in about an hour. Eh, no problem. We walk down to the beach, which happens to be the uh, place where the royalty, the Ali'i lived, and we're the only ones there and there's a couple thatched huts, and we're looking at that, and we're also looking around. There's this huge coconut grove throughout the entire area, and the place is just stunning. And you can feel this mana. Like I say, the beach here, and right out in front of that is a small little spot for the Ali'i to land their canoes in the sand, Beyond that, uh, the beach extends out to more or less a point. That's where the heiau is, which is a thatched structure 
uh, surrounded by a fence. Immediately adjacent to that is a little thatched structure, even smaller, which turns out that's where they store the bones of the dead chiefs, which impart their mana throughout the whole area. And that's surrounded by these 20 to 30 feet tall tiis, we would call them tikis, you know, to guard uh, those royal bones. And then the place of refuge is marked off by this 10 foot high, up to 17 foot thick, black lava rock wall. We're taking all this in and it's just gorgeous. We get, and then I notice, oh, it's about to, the sun is about to set. So we walk out there to the point to admire the sunset. And I'm thinking, oh man, it can't get more romantic than this, right? Well, but my wife Lisa gets spooked and she takes off. And she goes over to look at the heyow and then she's gone. I'm going, what the heck's up for that? So I, you know, I wanna watch the sunset. <clears throat> well, the sun just touches the horizon and suddenly things start to get mm, uneasy. It's 80 degrees, but I've got goosebumps and the hair standing up on my arms and the back of the neck. And I swear to God, the words float through my head, you're not allowed to be here now. You have not been initiated. Huh? I want to watch the sunset. <laughs> you are not allowed to be here now. You have not been initiated. What? You know, kind of like Noah. What? And then, you know, you are not allowed to be here now. You have not been initiated. Well, after three or four times of this, even I start to get the message, right? <laughs> so we leave, right, and take off, and immediately the voice stops, feeling goes away, but we're still creeped out. Eight or 10 days later, we're coming back from the volcano to Kona, driving right by the same place. And at the turnoff, there's a little spot called, a little place called the Museum of Hawaiian Culture, which the guidebook said was really cool to visit, but beware that the proprietor is crabby and doesn't like talking to tourists. Well, my wife can get anybody engaged in conversation, and she does. And I start explaining to this guy this experience, and he gets really excited and starts asking me all these questions. Exactly where were you? Exactly what time was, did this feeling come over you? And I start to explain, well, we were next to the temple, and the sun was just starting to set. And he goes, whoa, you are really spiritually sensitive to hear that message. I go, what? I mean, if that was a spiritual message, they may have started off whispering, but dude, they ended up screaming, you are not allowed to be here now. You have not been initiated. I said, what the heck was up with that? He looks at me and says, it is kapu to be on the temple grounds after sunset unless you're a priest. Thank you. Our next storyteller tonight is Brandon Cullum. Brandon has lived in Southeast Alaska long enough to become a husband, a father of two, 
have a few boats and several dogs, and wear out more than one pair of made-in-the-USA extra tufts. Please welcome Brandon to the stage. I'm 40 years old this year, and <laughs> thanks. And one thing I've figured out so far is that relationships are constantly changing. There's a book by David and Daniel Hayes called My Old Man in the Sea, where this father and son author duo take a sailing trip around Cape Horn. And through the book, they make this observation that responsibility and, and, and strength really starts to shift from the father to the son. And it's all couched in this, this role of captain on the boat. And, uh, but, but you know, the truth is, is that David and Daniel's relationship was probably changing every minute of every day of their life. But they had the sailing moment where they could just couch that whole experience of change in one metaphor and in, in one single experience, and they, they were able to see it. I had a similar moment, this sailing moment with my daughter a couple of years ago, where she walked out of her bedroom, and my daughter's six years old, and she walks out of her bedroom, and her hair is tied up in a bun, and there's a stick through it, and there's a little wisp of blonde hair sticking off to the side. And she just blew me away. She looked so cute. And I said, sweetie, you look awesome. Did your mom do your hair? And she said, no, daddy. She laughed at me like I was dumb. And she, she said, I did it. And uh, tears started to well up in my eyes. And right then, my six-year-old daughter was about to walk out the door to go to college. And, uh, and then she ran out the door, got on her BMX bike, and rode around the cul-de-sac for a while. But those sailing moments, for me, they're like sunshine in my mind. They hang on the walls of my memory like Rembrandts. I learn from them because they, they provide this pivotal moment where that change is a message to me, and I can adjust my course, I can prepare for what comes. But every now and then, there's a sailing moment that just, just slips by you late at night. You don't see it, you don't hear it. And, and these are the ones that can really haunt you. And I realized last year I had a sailing moment like this with my dad. But it was a long time ago. And, uh, but first, let me give you a little background about my dad. My dad was, was an athlete. He was a runner. He was a weightlifter. He was a military man. And when I was 12 years old, up until that point in time, I had never really spent any time with my dad. I didn't know him very well. I could count on one hand the amount of times I got to visit him. But when I was 12, my dad was in a car accident. And that accident left him paralyzed from, the, from his nipples to his toes. And he was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. But the upside was, after that accident, he slowed down, and I started spending a lot of time with him. And, you know, we developed a really interesting relationship. And, and as a youth, I really resented a lot of where our relationship went. I felt like my dad used me as a, a prosthetic to really support what he couldn't do anymore. And I felt like he had stopped saying please and thank you way, way before he should ever have stopped. But yet, at the same time, I felt like we kept this, this charade going where where he was the one that was supporting my independence, that was coaching me into being a, a stronger person, more capable. 
There was this period of time when I was about 16 where I was living with him, and I'd had enough of that. And late at night, when he was out drinking, I left, and I went and hid from him at my mom's house. And after about a week, I realized I had to go and face him. I needed my music, I needed my bed, I needed some clothes, my mom reminded me. And so I did what every really independent 16-year-old would do, and I grabbed my mom and said, let's go get my stuff. <laughs> and so there we are, we're standing on the porch with my mom under the hot sun, it's a clear blue day, and down there in front of me is my dad, waving his finger at me, just angry skin stretched across his face, spitting words like responsibility and rent and what were you thinking? And his black hair was just bouncing off his shoulders and I couldn't take it anymore. And so I reached up and I took my mom's hand and I pulled it off my, sh my shoulder and I reached out and I grabbed the door frame and I pushed right through my dad. And he pushed back. And when my dad pushed back against me, he started to fall. He and his wheelchair both just slowly started to tip. And I, I saw just panic spread across his face. And he reached out to grab my arm and he missed. And then he reached out with his other arm to grab the door frame and he missed the door frame and panic was just replaced with horror because in the middle of that moment, he was gonna fall straight to the ground in front of his son and his ex-wife. And I reached out to him and with both my hands, I grabbed him and I slowly set him upright. And in that moment, our eyes locked and the anger, the panic and the horror all disappeared from his face. And so I pushed through my dad as he kind of backed away, and I grabbed my stuff, and I left. And over the years, I only saw my dad a handful of times after that. And what I realized last year, and what haunts me, is that was a sailing moment with my dad. If I had seen that moment from that perspective, I would have realized he wasn't taking advantage of me. He wasn't, he wasn't unappreciative. He needed me. I was his son, and our roles were shifting before nature maybe would have had them shift, but nonetheless, they had shifted. And I probably wouldn't have been so hard on him, and I would have had a closer relationship. But there's an upside to this story, because now I know. Now I know to look for these sailing moments. I, I see them with my daughter, I see them with my wife, and I learn from them. And I learn more about what's to come from these relationships. Thank you. Our next speaker is Jesse Keel. Jesse was born and raised in Anchorage, and it took until after he graduated college to get it right and move to Juneau. <laughs> he imported his girlfriend, now his wife, from outside. 
He told a story in Mudroom's first season, but the last time he told anyone tonight's story was to Karen when they were dating. Jesse and Karen are now in their 17th year of marriage. He is a lousy and unmotivated housekeeper. Please help me welcome Jesse. Back uh, <clears throat> early mid 1980s, uh, Alaska's economy hit the skids pretty hard. A lot of people had invested for the long term and price of oil dropped. State didn't have any reserves, big recession. My parents, faced with losing it all, decided they'd spend a little bit. We were going to take the family on a cruise. It's a great backdrop for a week in the sunny Caribbean on the fun ship, huh? <laughs> so I was 14 years old, had a sister, had a brother, family was going to share a cabin, and, and off we went with this strange backdrop and cruised around the Caribbean. Well, you know, winter break, the, uh, the boat's full of uh, college students taking advantage of the lower drinking age in international waters, and teenagers like me who weren't quite that old uh, didn't want to hang out with those horrifyingly old people like my parents. So there were some teen activities, and so I, I got to do some of those things on the ship and um, met some people my own age, including a girl. She was 14, and, and um, it's been a long time now. It's been, what, 24, 28 years? 20, how many years? Long time. And, <laughs> and we can pretend that time has dulled the memory, but instead, let's give her a pseudonym. We'll use the month I was born, and we'll call her April. Well, you didn't talk to April too long before you learned that when she was younger, uh, she'd had cancer. And her uh, very attentive and loving parents, in addition to all the medical care she could need, also tried to support her in every way they could think of. So there were camps for kids with cancer, and there were support groups for kids with cancer, and there were kids with cancer singing lessons. And the unintended side effect of all that emotional support was that a whole lot of April's friends were dead or currently dying of cancer. You got the sense when you talked to April that she considered herself a cancer survivor so far. But we were all on a cruise, and there were lots of fun activities and beautiful places and warm weather, and so we had a lot of fun. And one night, most of the way through the week, uh, we didn't want to do whatever goofy teen thing was going on, and our parents were still old. And so we found ourselves, the two of us, walking around and talking and laughing, and then on the aft deck, under the stars and the warm breeze, and we were kissing. 14 years old. Not your first kiss, but you're still 14, so you're really awkward. <laughs> and and you don't know quite what this means. I mean, it's just a week-long cruise, and you don't know what to do next, and you don't know where to put your hands. Or... Okay, let's be honest. I'm 14. You didn't know where you could get away with putting your hands. <laughs> we all do our growing up later. Uh, suffice it to say that, that confusing and awkward as it was, instead of walking back to our family's cabin, I, I more floated. I don't quite remember getting back there. And the next day, we were ashore, each with our own families, and her family wanted to do something after dinner, and we saw each other in the dining room, and, and, and we didn't end up connecting, interested as I was in trying out that whole 
kissing thing with April again and uh, read my book for a while, fell asleep. Uh, about 11.30, maybe it was midnight, and the door to the cabin banged open and the light flipped on and my sister shook me away. Wake up, wake up, what did you do? What did you do to that girl? What did you, what was the matter with you? That'll wake you up pretty quick. What, 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 what are you talking about? What, 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 what's, what girl, what, April, what? What did you do, she said to me. They found her on the back deck. She was climbing over the rail. What did you do? They had to pull her back and she fought them. She hurt some guy who was pulling her back on the boat. What did you do? I didn't do, I didn't do anything. I mean, I, I didn't, I mean, we kissed. I mean, we, I mean, I put my hand on, nothing. We didn't do anything. I, now my sister can stretch a story. She, uh, she can string you along pretty good until you finally realize she's been playing with you. There was none of that. There was none of that here. So I said, I said, is she all right? She said, well, she's on the boat. I don't know. We found my parents. And everybody agreed that given what had gone on, it wouldn't be too late to call April's family's room. And so I picked up the phone. And for those of you who are a little younger, phones used to actually be a thing that you held in your hand with a wire. And, and, and I, I called. Her mother picked up, said, hello. I said, hi, is April? there? And she said, well, who's calling, please? And I said, well, this is Jesse. And then April's mom made what was then, and for many years after, the biggest mistake of my life. The, um, the human voice is a very powerful and amazing thing. I mean, here we are at Mudrooms tonight. It, it can exalt the soul. It can Praise God, it can, it can make your child cry with your tone before you even get to your words. Uh, um, <clears throat> Remember that movie, um, The Princess Bride, and there's that moment where Mandy Patinkin hears this distant scream and he says, that is the sound of ultimate suffering. Right. Well, I, I watched that movie again sometime after this cruise, and I just went, nope. Because I've heard that sound. This is Jesse, I said, and, and April's mom said, oh, hi, Jesse. And April screamed. The most, I'm sorry, um, the most gut-wrenching scream I have ever heard before or since. And she screamed my name. And then she did it again. And then she did it again. And I slammed down the phone. Um... Turns out my dad's a psychiatrist, and he made sure that she got a sedative and she got the, the mental health help she needed after a, a psychotic episode. But the sound of a broken soul screaming your name will haunt you all your days.
made up their minds. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on October 13, 2015 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was hauntings. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. But where were they going without ever knowing the way? They drank up the wine and they got to talking. They now had more important things to say. Um, our next storyteller is Chris Murray. Between wrangling two rambunctious young ones under the age of six, pretending during the day to be a successful bureaucrat, and striving to reduce his home energy bills by just one more percentage point, it's a miracle that Chris is even awake at this time of night. <laughs> Fortunate for you all, he married a teetotaler, which pretty much guarantees his story will remain relevant and on point this evening. <laughs> Chris has been living, paying taxes, voting, and contributing as much as possible in Juneau for 13 years, but is still yearning for that mythical local status that he keeps hearing about. Please welcome Chris to the stage. That bio sounded a lot better in my head. Um, So I'm here tonight. As you all know, the theme is haunted, and I'm here tonight to tell you of a very real haunting. I'm here to talk about a spirit that has haunted me and has tormented me in many ways for almost 40 years, ever since I was a very young child. This spirit uh, visits me sometimes weekly, sometimes daily. As a matter of fact, leading up to this event, the spirit has been visiting with me almost on an hourly basis been trying to tell me not to come up here and tell my story, but here I am. This spirit goes by many names, but I think that the majority of you in this audience might know it as the Holy Spirit. Let me back up a little bit. See, I was born in North Carolina, raised there until I was 19 years old, the best Carolina, by the way. And uh, while I was there, my family, and by extension myself, we attended an independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Baptist church. This is the kind of place where a dancing foot and a praying knee don't belong on the same leg. Of course, we believed in God. We served a God. The God that we served, the God that we believed in, manifest in the Trinity. God the Father lives up in heaven, does his God thing. God the Son was sent down to earth to die for our sins, by his blood are we saved. And then God, the Holy Spirit, who was left here on earth to talk to us and tell us when perhaps we're not making the best choices or to perhaps direct us in a different way. And so not only did we serve this God, but you may have heard the term God is love, right? Well, The God that we served, his primary attribute was holiness. And as a result, he was unable to look upon sin. It's not his fault. He just can't do it. He's holy. And so 
what that means is that if perhaps you're headed the wrong direction or you're not doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, that Holy Spirit's going to start talking to you, right? And the Holy Spirit's going to perhaps suggest a different way to go. If you don't heed that, then God becomes a very vengeful God, a very angry God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. You may have heard of that sermon. And as a result, he might just decide to yank your chain. How might that take place? Well, hard to say. Maybe get sick. Maybe you lose a job. Maybe you lose a pet. I imagine it could get a lot worse than that. Now, not only did I attend this church, but I also attended a Christian school that espoused the same doctrine, the same values. This was a seven-day-a-week commitment for me. I mean, this was a lot of work. And I can very clearly remember, as an eight-year-old boy, second grade, attending a chapel service where we were having a uh, feature film presentation, and it was regarding the rapture and the tribulation. And all of the kindergartners through, I don't know, I think it was fourth grade at the time, we all attended this uh, presentation. And for those of you that aren't familiar, the rapture is when Jesus Christ returns for his church. Those that are left behind go through a seven-year tribulation, three and a half years of peace and three and a half years of hell on earth. And then comes the millennium. Well, the protagonist of our story in our film was a young boy, aged 11 years old. He wakes up one day, and his family is gone. They've all disappeared. His mom and dad are gone. His brother and sister are gone. He's left alone in this world to fend for himself. And it's not an easy world to fend for himself in. Now, all is not lost. Because there's still a way that he can be okay. As long as he doesn't espouse to the ideas of the Antichrist, as long as he doesn't take the mark of the beast, which, by the way, allows you to buy, sell, and trade in the tribulation. As long as he doesn't do these things, he'll be okay. Oh, and by the way, he has to be martyred as a Christian in order to obtain salvation. So our protagonist joins up with a group of like-minded individuals. Yeah, gosh, I wish we would have made the right decisions, but we're on the right track now. They suffered. They suffered a lot. They fought starvation. They fought violence. They fought sickness in the streets. And finally, it's time for salvation to come, and they're standing in line waiting to be martyred as Christians. Our protagonist is holding a red balloon, and he approaches the guillotine. It's very specific about that. The little boy puts his head into the locks. He professes his love for Jesus Christ. The camera pans to the guillotine blade. The guillotine drops, and a red balloon floats into the sky. At the end of the film, the altar is crowded with dozens of five, six, seven, eight, and nine-year-olds weeping and wailing and crying and begging to be saved from their five, six, seven, eight, and nine-year-old sins. You want to put the fear of God into a kid? 
Sick the Holy Spirit on them. That was that ghost that was telling those kids, you need to get up there right now. It felt a lot like fear. It felt a lot like terror. It was the Holy Spirit. I could go on and on. The angel of death. You want to hear some horror stories? Read the Bible. I'm not here to rail against religion. I appreciate the role of religion in our communities and in our lives. I truly do. But the truth of the matter is, as I stand here, and it's very difficult for me to say this, because I am still afraid to this day of what may happen to me. But if God is the kind of God that would do such a thing to a child, by extension of that haunting Holy Spirit, I think the truth of the matter is that's not a God that I'm interested in knowing. <laughs> I've dodged another lightning strike. Um, so our next storyteller is Laura Haywood, and she has been a Juno resident for 13 years, not one to settle for one career. She's had many, including sales girl, waitress, biologist, typesetter, scientific illustrator, graphic designer, technical writer, web designer, arts administrator, and impresario. All those careers, plus a mis misspent youth, have combined to produce someone with quite a few stories to tell. Here's one of them. Please help me welcome Laura to the stage. Hi, thank you for coming. I want to tell you a little bit about my mother tonight. Um, she died in April, so I've been thinking about her a lot. Um, my mother was about the friendliest person I've ever known. She would meet somebody new and stare at them with this huge grin on her face. It was almost like you know, she was, had double-barreled eyes. She would just, you know, attack them. And, you know, not everyone responded well to that. For instance, my sister and I did not like it that much. But uh, she made good friends really, really fast. And just to illustrate how quickly she could accomplish this, this is, it might not be her personal best, but it was up there. Uh, my parents came to visit us in Seattle you know, we went and picked him up at the airport, and you know how SeaTac, you go down to baggage claim, and um, she wasn't too mobile. She had a walker, so we went and dropped her off at the elevator, and then we raced down the uh, escalator, and then we went and met the elevator, and just, you know, we saw the doors open, and my mother's coming out saying, well, you know, I really hope that your husband's chemo goes well, and, and the other woman said, thank you so much, you've helped me so much. That wow, one floor. <laughs> I can't imagine what she could have done with the high rise, but that was my mother. So for most of her career, she was a teacher. She taught little kids. She always loved children, and they adored her, and uh, she taught everything from kindergarten through third grade. And she did that for many years and was, by all accounts, very successful. She really influenced the lives of hundreds and hundreds of people in the Chicago area. Eventually, after she retired, she became a grief counselor, which was a whole other way of 
becoming intimate with other people's lives. And um, I want to tell you a little story about the particular child who kind of instigated that for her. My mother changed grades a lot, but she was teaching what they call junior kindergarten. This is four-year-olds. And uh, there was a parent-teacher conference, and this mother came in and sat down and just matter-of-factly explained that um, she had had a cancer diagnosis, and she was terminal, and she wanted my mother to know that so she could provide a lot of stability for this child, her daughter. And, you know, my mother was, of course, taken aback, but she did the best she could, and this was in the 1970s. You didn't go Google, you know, child bereavement or something. You just, there really weren't a lot of resources, so she just had to wing it. And um, she was very good at operating out of her instincts. One thing she noticed about this child was that she was really prolific. She, with artwork, she painted and drew constantly. And she noticed that the subject matter was very expressive. She would paint all these pictures of little children you know, in black boxes, and, and later on, the mother died the second year. My mother ended up having this child for three years. She kept going up in grade along with the child. So when this child was five, her mother died, and after that, the pictures had a lot of angels and that sort of thing. And I think now people pretty much understand that when you have children who are that young and not very verbal, they do express their emotions through artwork. But that wasn't anything anybody really talked about. I actually think that she published a paper with these pictures, uh, but that was what sort of sent her in the direction of grief and, you know, death and dying and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And, you know, my father used to kind of make fun of her... Uh, you know, I'd call and say, oh, you know, what do you, what's mom doing this weekend? Oh, she's having the best time at her grief workshop. She's just having so much fun. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she did. Another big feather in her cap was um, the town that I grew up in was kind of in the vanguard in some areas. We had a very early mass school shooting. And this was in 1988. You might remember it. It was actually a young woman, which is really rare. And she walked into, it was actually the school that I went to as a child, not the one my mother taught in. It was in the same district. But this woman walked in with a gun and started shooting. And uh, one child died. Five were wounded. And they sent for my mother. So she came over and she just rolled up her sleeves and got busy and she was counseling everybody. She trained the other teachers, you know. And once again, this isn't something you could Google. They didn't know that mass shootings were going to become so popular that there would be protocols around it. I just read that University of Alaska is going to be implementing new protocols on, uh, you know, because of the Umpqua college shootings. Well, nobody knew about that stuff then. So she totally functioned on on instinct and was, for the most part, very successful at it. So when you know somebody that's such an expert in death and dying and grief and all that, you kind of think that they're going to be pretty good at their own death. But as it turned out, my mother wasn't. She spent the last 10 years in a nursing home She'd had a stroke. She was, you know, this is a person who was a perpetual motion machine, almost inert, someone who talked all the time. She kind of never shut up and, you know, completely mute. And 
that was really hard to take. And so for the past 10 years, I have been haunted by this person who was my mother and yet not my mother. And I would go visit as often as I could, but it was terribly dispiriting. And um, I found I couldn't even think about her and what she had been like while this other person was in front of me. And finally, uh, you know, I, my theory about why that was, was, you know, she was like a little kid that was super tired but didn't want to go to bed because she might miss something. And I think all those years she was still hanging on that something else might happen for her, but it didn't. And finally she slipped away in April. And uh, suddenly we are all free. She's free and I am and my sister and we can remember the person that she was and it feels so good to share her with you and because she was a wonderful person and I feel like I got her back. So that's been a big plus. Thank you very much. Our next storyteller is Marcus Blankenship, Alabama native. Um, he is not new to our stage or to storytelling. His family, friends, and students are subjected to his stories on a daily basis. He has recently started his second year of teaching and second year of living in Alaska. Marcus's hobbies include reading, cooking, talking, and generally bringing joy to the people around him. Please welcome Marcus to the stage. Well, good evening, guys, and I'm excited to be here with you. And the story I want to tell you is about an awesome year. And if you'll give me time, I'll get to the theme, I promise. But what I want you to remember is that awesomeness can refer to moments of great joy, of great happiness, of great pain and sadness. And I've experienced awesomeness in every sense of the word over the last year. Just a little over a year ago, I moved nearly 3,000 miles from home in rural Alabama up to rural Alaska. And I moved here to take my very first teaching job. I got off the airplane, and they told me that, among other things, I would be teaching Alaska history. That's not something we study in Birmingham. <laughs> and so I was awesomely scared at that moment. but. I figured it out, and then I had the pleasure of teaching your children and my students at Thunder Mountain, and on so many occasions, almost every day, they did these amazingly awesome things, and they reminded me of all the reasons that I became a teacher, and they reaffirmed that decision. Then more than that, in this last year, I had the pleasure to travel to school to so many amazing places. I went to California, to Arizona, Nevada, and to Colorado. I've stood on the Golden Gate Bridge, and I've been in awe of man's ingenuity and ability to overcome what seemed like insurmountable obstacles. I've stood at the top of Pikes Peak, and in front or at the very edge of the Grand Canyon, and, in been, and been in awe of the majesty and beauty of God's creation. And then I went to Las Vegas, and that was awesome, but it's a different theme and a different night. Uh, 
But what I really want to tell you about is this awesome tattoo that I got over the summer. And you see, it's, do, give me a minute, I'll get there. Uh, it's a pound cake, and you heard that right, it's a pound cake on my arm. And the reason I got this pound cake, and if you don't believe me, see me before, we, before I leave. Uh, the reason I got this pound cake is because it reminds me of my grandmother. You see, I was raised by my grandmother and grandfather. They're my parents. They adopted me when I was 10 years old. And my grandmother taught me how to cook, and she taught me how to bake, and she gave me this passion for it. And one night when I was about 11 or 12, my grandmother and grandfather were gone, uh, and I was home alone, and I needed something to do. I was bored. So I found this recipe for a buttermilk pound cake, and I decided to make it. And so I made my pound cake, and I turned it out of its, uh, its pan, and it looked just like the picture, and it was perfect, and I was so excited. But then I looked at the clock, and it was getting closer and closer to the time for my grandparents to get home. And then I was nervous, and I was scared. Not because I had used the oven when they were away or used ingredients I wasn't supposed to, but because little boys in Alabama don't make cakes. Little boys in Alabama don't bake. And so I knew that when my momo and granddaddy got home, they were going to be ashamed. And they were going to be disappointed in me. And I remember my momo walking through the door, and she saw my cake. And she just lit up, and she smiled from ear to ear. And she said, it's perfect. Now let's taste it. And she cut into it, and she said, and it tastes just right. Now you get to bake everything. <laughs> And I did, but her reaction, it solidified in me a passion and a love for baking that continues to this day. But the reason I got this tattoo and what goes, I guess, to the theme of this story, uh, in late February, about four or five days after my grandmother's 75th birthday, I got a phone call from my aunt and she said, Marcus, uh, mama has a, a brain tumor and it's bad. And it turned out it was the worst of the worst that she could have. And so I had to get home. And I got home and I got to spend time with my grandmother. And I got to be there with her through her surgery and through so many other things. But you see, after she had her surgery, she was unconscious for a few days and we were really nervous. And I was the first family member that walked in after she had woken up and I didn't even know she was awake. I walk into the ICU and she's sitting up in bed eating graham crackers and drinking coffee. And I jokingly said, who the hell are you and what'd you do with my grandmother? And she said, I'm your grandmother and you don't talk to me that way. <laughs> yes, ma'am, I'm sorry. But then she told me a beautiful story. She said, Marcus, when I was down, I went to the cross. She said, I climbed up the cross and I looked in the eyes of my Savior. She said, I felt every lash and I felt every hammer stroke and I came down from the cross and son, I was washed in the cleansing blood of the Lamb and I choose to believe that. And a couple of days later, just 21 days after we found out she had a tumor, I got a phone call from my aunt and she said, Marcus, wake daddy up and get to the hospital. Something's happened. And in the morning while she slept, a blood clot had broken off from her heart and gone to her brain. And I walked into the hospital room and I was struck with how awesomely profound this moment was. My grandmother, the most important person in my life, 
was laying there in bed, and I was watching as she transitioned from this life to the next, and I sat down beside her and I held her hand. And I held her hand all day long, and I was holding her hand when just after five o'clock, she took her last breath. And it's the most awesomely precious moment I've ever experienced to be there as she was lifted from this life to a greater life by that Savior that she looked in his eyes. But at that moment, I couldn't think of that. I was crushed. I was defeated. It was the most awesomely painful experience I've ever had in my life. And there was no way I could make it. I couldn't overcome this. And then I remembered her story of being washed in the blood. And then I was enveloped in the love of my friends and my family and of that same God that I serve. And when I didn't think I could lift myself up, I was carried on the shoulders of so many other people and they lifted me up to new heights. And so when I got home to, or well, I don't know if I call it home yet, but when I got back to Alaska, I finished that first year of teaching and I went and did all of that great traveling and I came back and I said, what can I do to really put the dot on this exclamation point? And so I got my tattoo and every time I look down at my tattoo, I'm not haunted by a painful death, but I'm lifted up by an awesome life and by the wonderful people that I love and by a grandmother that I had and that I'll cherish forever. Thank you all for listening to my story. My little dog ran away the other day. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on October 13, 2015. The theme for the evening was hauntings. To tell your story or to find out when you can attend the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Kristen Stouter with Rich Moniak and additional help from Alita Bus, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Rich, and Steve Suing. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. A day. The day. That was the day that Lassie went to the moon. Little dog Lassie packed her bags and went out to the port. Yeah, 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 yeah.